KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The coronavirus pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Matt Leon. I think we're learning more and more every day that we're kind of living through a moment. And there have been other moments in our lifetime. You think about 9-11, you think about the the housing crisis, the the Great Recession. You know, but you kind of go back over time in American society. You have the Great Depression. You've got World War II. You've got a lot of moments in history where when you look back, you can see how society changed be it politically, economically, socially, but you could see how things change. So thinking that, I was curious to get some context if we're indeed living in a moment where we could see big time change in how things are addressed uh, politically, stuff like that. So the best way to predict the future is possibly to reach back into the past. So I caught up with Brent Siebel. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, a lot of focus on the 20th century in the U.S., uh, political capitalism, business, political economy, stuff like that. And uh, thought he would be a good guy to kind of bounce some things off of and get his thoughts on where we are and where we could possibly go once we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. As a professor of history and someone who has really done a lot of work looking at the the 20th century in the U.S., do you think we are in the midst of a moment here with this COVID-19 pandemic that is something will be remembered in certain ways, like how the Great Depression, you know, changed society, 9-11, World War II, or is it too early, you think, to, to say that? Uh, I think we're definitely still early days, but I think the if you look at the sort of the incredibly broad range of catastrophes that are associated with this pandemic. You certainly have all the seeds of really seismic changes um, that that could um, that could lead to certain outcomes that, like we had after the Great Depression and after World War II, perhaps after 9/11. Certainly, so I, I think we're we're very much still early days. But I think I think if you look at the employment crisis that is unfolding, if you look at the public health crisis. If you look at the sort of crisis of faith between citizens and their government, all of these are very fertile ground in which really major change can happen in society. So give people that may not be familiar some context. Uh, Specifically, I think the Great Depression is really a flashpoint in American history. Give people an idea of prior to the Depression and after it, what are some things that change? Because really, if I'm correct, prior to the Great Depression, government's opinion was basically you're on your own if times are tough, correct? More or less, yeah. I mean, I think the place the place where most Americans would go for social support in times of need would have been local governments or more sort of voluntary fraternal associations, community associations, churches, those sorts of things. But when I say and when I say we're in the early days of this, and I think one of the things that's really important to, to keep in mind is that the stock market crashed in October of 1929, and we didn't really get the revolutionary political change until Roosevelt's election in 32. Um, and so there were there were years before 
really meaningful political alignments started to go into place to begin to build what became the New Deal. And so, you know, obviously where we are in an election year, we may we may have a little bit of an accelerated timeline in terms of getting in a new political regime. But the, the period between 1929 and 1933 was just devastating in the United States. We had something like 5,000 banks just go belly up during those years. And this was before the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation insured regular American savings and banks. That, of course, was a product of the New Deal because so many people's savings just went poof in those three years prior to the Roosevelt administration. So the kind of sort of durable political change that you get in something like the New Deal or something like World War II takes takes a good deal of time. And I think we're, we're very much in the early days um, right now. Given history, what it's taught us, what are some ways you think we could see some things change? You talk about some seeds being planted. And I mean, specifically for me, I look at the stimulus package that was passed. I mean, the government basically sending cash payments to people they want to stay home. I mean, you said something that to somebody two months ago, they think you're crazy, but that's where we are. Yeah, I think I think actually looking at the stimulus package is probably not the right place to look because that that is a that's a momentary band-aid. It's a huge band-aid <laughs> that's been put out there and I I would actually urge people to think more in terms of less like a one-time check that might arrive and more in terms of how citizens relationship with their states um with their government begins to change. So one thing that you see in Minnesota and Vermont and some other places is that a whole new category of employee in the state has been added to the essential um, the essential employees list, which entitles them to free childcare subsidized by governments. And those those kinds of sort of emergency measures in which all of a sudden social um, social welfare provision, social policy expands. It's very hard to take that away from people <laughs> once the state has said, you know what, we can't afford this. It's an emergency situation here, but. That has a way of creating um, what political scientists call policy feedbacks, um, you know, in which case people start to say, well, you know what, this is actually a pretty good thing to have subsidized child care. Why don't we why don't we have this when times are good as well? And so the, the CARES Act that passed last week, as you say, is a massive stimulus, but it's a one time jolt. What the New Deal and World War Two were ultimately was a was a really sustained period of social change and social policy reform. That really revolutionized, as you said, that that relationship between citizens and their government. So, from a situation in which you know you were largely left on your own prior to the New Deal, when we come out of World War II, you have government ensuring Social Security uh, payments, you have government guaranteeing a right to higher education for returning veterans, you have government uh, subsidizing mortgage lending, um, so that. You know, millions and millions of Americans, overwhelmingly white Americans, because of some of the racial restrictions in it, were able to get mortgages, whereas prior to the New Deal, most mortgages were five and 10 years. It was actually the New Deal's regulatory and subsidies that created the 30-year fixed rate mortgage as, as the sort of norm in society. So, so many things that we take for granted as sort of just how markets work or how banks work, we're actually the product of New Deal policymakers going in and, and creating incentives and regulations to sort of democratize, you know, lowercase d, democratize the way financial institutions and other, and other uh, major parts of the American business landscape that we take for granted how they operate. You mentioned those 
programs in, in Minnesota and Vermont, from, from what you've seen and what you see with our society, where are some other ways you think you could see landscapes start to shift? Because one of the things I think this is a moment where you kind of alluded to this, like what people want from their government. Like it's, it's hard to argue small government in times like this, I guess is my, one of my points, right? Could we see the return of big government overall? Well, I mean, I think, I think the, the, we, we have big government, whether people are benefiting from it or not, (laughs) you know, there's governments doing all sorts of things to deliver large tax subsidies to wealthy people and corporations and, you know, big government is in the eye of the beholder. I think the question is, to whom is big government uh, beholden and who is it supporting is, is, the, is, the, is the way I would frame that question. And I think one of the things that people are starting to, to wonder about is, if in this time of massive deficits that have been created by some of these huge tax cut packages that are simply not delivering the kind of supply side tax growth that conservative dogma says that they will, why can't we subsidize things like universal health care uh, or, or heavily subsidized health care? Why can't we you know, have better wage standards? Why can't we have universal child care and paid family leave um, during these times? You know? And I think one of, the, one of the things that I think a crisis like this, and, and really a crisis like this is unique, um, a pandemic um, in, in sort of ways that are echo the, the stock market ripple effects from 1929, is that it reminds us that we really are all in it together in a in a very real sense and and that in fact was one of the big themes of Franklin Roosevelt's first inaugural address was was sort of trying to take um, the movement that that had led to his election and defeating Hoover and sort of translating that into a language for sort of reviving American sense that that we um, you know, our, our our most important collective institution is our government, and if we can and if we can all get involved and understand that we all have skin in the game, we can actually do some fairly progressive things with it. And I think that that spirit of collective endeavor has has been eroded over the course of the last forty or fifty years, and that you know, there's nothing like a pandemic to remind us that class, creed, color, it, this this disease doesn't know those boundaries, and so it's important to to begin thinking collectively again. And you mentioned collectively, one of the things that's interesting is you're seeing, I think it's in New York at an Amazon uh, warehouse, people walking out, Instacart, uh, something about a Whole Foods walkout. Could this be a moment where you start to see uh, organized labor, kind of a grassroots from the ground up, it starts to have a resurgence? I think it, I think it is, and I think, but I also think that it's not simply because of the the pandemic. I mean, I think one of the things that has it's important that we don't start the history of this pandemic three weeks ago. Um, there have been some real grassroots push. You think of the the fight for fifteen among fast food workers. There have been real sustained efforts to, you know, reignite worker consciousness over the last decade, decade and a half. That you know, compared to what we saw in the in the 90s, say, is really profound. And and so there, there is a, there is a groundwork laid, uh, I think, among workers, um, and particularly among you know this new category of what 20 25 percent of American workers are what we call contingent, right? That are contractors or are you know not not officially employed full time by by their main employer. And I think there is now a we're at a point at which there's such a critical mass of these workers in the economy, and these are precisely the people who are working for Instacart and Amazon fulfillment centers, 
who are recognizing that they actually are absolutely integral to making this economy work and that they have been getting the shaft. And so they now have a sense of consciousness and are recognizing perhaps the leverage that they have in a moment like this, not only leverage, but also the unique burdens that they have in a moment like this um, to keep the supply chains running and to keep, you know, the sort of literal foundations of the American economy running. Um, and so I think that they are, they are recognizing this is a, a moment both of, of um, potential peril for them, but also opportunity. So someone that in 1945 was a 35-year-old person, had been through World War II, the Great Depression, and even if you want to throw in the 1918 flu pandemic, you know, you, you put these incredible cornerstone events of society and, you know, somebody still relatively young having gone through all that. How did that kind of shape a generation? And could we see the same thing happening here with people that, you know, 35 years old have been through a 9-11, the Great Recession, and now this? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the question, again, is 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 often in terms of how these things are framed. And I think I think and how these policies are framed, especially. I mean, one of the things that you so if you take your 35 year old um, and say it's a you know white suburban veteran and his and his nuclear family as we enter the Cold War era, he has his mortgage subsidized by the GI Bill and the Veterans Administration. He went to college on a GI Bill loan, and his you know he's got his Social Security and his pension guaranteed through the various tax credits that the U.S. government gives to the corporation that he works for. A lot of those people are deeply grateful to the opportunities that they received from government. But, and this is a this is a really important thing to I think wrap our heads around, they also had a deep sense that they had earned those benefits, right? Through service in World War Two and through other and then through social security, right? It's this is actually a, a payroll tax. And so I do think that that there was a an effort on 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 the part of a lot of the New Dealers and World War II era Democrats and policymakers to not frame the social programs that they created as outside the tradition of individualism in the United States. They very much wanted beneficiaries to think of themselves as having earned all these benefits, which was sort of brilliant for making sure that those programs would stay in place. But it also made it very hard to think in more expansive terms about people who were left out of those social programs, who didn't have access to the GI Bill or you know federal mortgage insurance, these types of programs, which are often going to be women and people of color. And so when, when you saw the social safety net attempt to expand to include those constituencies, you saw a backlash from some of the same people who would have been your 35-year-old who said, well, the state never gave me all this stuff. I earned it, right? And so I think thinking carefully about how to frame these new programs should they come online in much more universal terms, I think, is, a, is going to be an important thing, because I think so many of our political fault lines have come from a set of Americans who who have profoundly benefited from government, but don't necessarily see it in those terms and resent government's efforts sometimes more visibly to help those that they think are less deserving. And so we're in a moment where those stakes are up in the air again, and we can we can begin to sort of shuffle the deck and then see if we can create more uni- more truly universal uh, social programs. And just finally, kind of overall, is this really a moment where we will kind of look back 20 years from now and say that the last 20 years were were shaped or kind of took root during what what happens now? I think so. I mean, I think I think it's possible. I also think that um, 
I think it's very possible that we might not see durable political change um, out of this. That you know, it's, it's exceedingly possible that we could see Donald Trump reelected and conservatives holding the Senate and not seeing significant political change. And so I, I um, or or even you know, even if Biden gets elected, we might not see. I mean, he he continues even today to sort of to suggest that he's not on board with Medicare for all, right? Which would be a more you know, truly revolutionary change coming out of this moment. So I think, I think the, the key thing to keep in mind here, and this is you know sort of the boring historian response, but but let's not get ahead of ourselves in this process, and and remember that all of the things that we associate with the New Deal took place over the course of very nearly 20 years, from the late 1920s through the late 1940s, and so that was. That we, we we tend to sort of <laughs> shrink them down to you know Franklin Roosevelt, but he was president for twelve years, right? So that's a long time to be able to sort of develop and, and cohere a program and experiment with things. So I would just say it's the the window of opportunity is opening for great political change, but it's going to take hard work and sustained organizing for those who who want to see that change. That's it for this episode of KYW in depth coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic here in the Philadelphia area, or if you want to know how what you see or hear on the news is going to change your own life or your own routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name is Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 